Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Pastor Yates just told me just come on up and start talking, and so we're going to get started, but I'm going to wait a minute until everybody gets seated. Tonight we get to talk about dinosaurs, so you can't go wrong. Uh, apparently some of the people didn't want to hear about dinosaurs, but the important people are here. Look around, up. yep, that's me. So you guys are here, and you want to hear about dinosaurs, we're going to talk about them. A lot of people have a lot of questions about dinosaurs. People wonder if dinosaurs are millions of years old. That's what you're told all the time. When I was in school, that's what I was told all the time. That's what all the books said. That's one of the reasons ICR is out there. We're trying to provide other resources that show the real truth about dinosaurs, that they're not necessarily like the secular people say. In fact, I don't believe they were even warm-blooded. So in Jurassic Park, they wouldn't have steamed up that window. <laughs> so remember that? Steaming up the window? That that was actually just an idea that secular scientists are kicking around. Our dinosaurs are warm-blooded and dinosaurs are like birds. That's their evolutionary worldview coming through. And so there's two worldviews out there. There's God's worldview, where you believe God's word. The whole, all of it, from the very beginning to the end, the truth of God's word. God's word doesn't mention dinosaurs, but it does talk about dinosaurs. So it doesn't use the right word, we'll see why. But a lot of people get confused on this. Aren't they millions of years old? Didn't they live before humans? Didn't they, did they get on the ark? And finally, why aren't they in the Bible? And I think they actually are. We'll talk about one or two of those as we go along. And that was a picture of my daughter and I. She's the one that worked at the, set, the Starbucks right around the corner here, uh, putting herself through nursing school. But she was still in junior high there, I think, so it's been a while. Gas prices may never reach that low again. <laughs> but that was out in South Dakota at a Sinclair gas station where they have the Sauropod, brontosaurus for their mascot, so to speak. But what's the Bible say? It's always good to first turn to the Bible. Say, what does the Bible say? What did God do when he created animals? On day six, he made all the land animals. He talks about, and God made the beast of the earth according to its kind in Genesis 1.25. So the dinosaurs are part of that beast of the earth. Again, we're going to see why in a minute, why they don't say dinosaurs. But God didn't list lions and tigers and bears either. But they were made at the same time. And, and then Adam had to name them all. And he was still waiting for his mate after he saw all the animals. But God created all animals, including humans, to eat just plants. There are a lot more plants back then. Some of these plants went extinct after the flood. But there's lots of varieties of plants we see in the fossil record. Even T-Rex with those big teeth must have eaten some type of plant or plants. And they find alligators and crocodiles today when the scientists study them and cut them open to see what they're eating. They're finding they're eating plants still. And it's kind of surprised them about eight, ten years ago. They did a study and showed that, why are they still eating plants? Well, that's the way God designed them. So some of them still eat plants. They'll, they'll eat your poodle, but they like to eat plants as well. And so they supplement their diet with what they were supposed to eat. So God made dinosaurs on day six, all land animals on day six, including dinosaurs, and he made them all to eat plants. And it wasn't until Adam sinned that they started eating each other and would possibly eat you. But in my research, I'm actually showing that they probably lived in separate areas from the humans, separate areas from the lions, tigers, and bears as well. And so I think they lived at the same time, but there are different ecological zones, and that's what my flood research is starting to show. Dinosaurs were on the ark, yes. The answer is yes, because God didn't exclude any animals. He said, I'll bring two of every kind to you. God brought most animals to the ark, two of every kind. Creatures that moved on the ground, two of every kind, and food. 
And then in Genesis 7, 21, 23, it talks about everything on land perished. They had the breath of life. If you go to the flood account, that means all the dinosaurs, they didn't get on the ark. They weren't chosen. The chosen two of each kind also perished. And those became the fossils that you see out in the back. The gentleman brought in all these little fossil pieces. And the fossils I've dug up, and the fossil pieces that you can find, if you go looking for dinosaurs, those all died in the flood, along with almost all the other fossils as well. Everything on land perished that had the breath of life by day 150 of the flood. And so the dinosaurs died as well. But yet God preserved two of every kind, two of every kind of dinosaur on the ark. Noah's ark was very, very big. This is the minimum size based on the cubit. I think Ken Ham and his AIG people made a full-size ark, and I think they made theirs 500 feet long. Even a little bit bigger. It's, it's an impressive thing to say. I don't like to push other ministries, but it's worth going to go see the ark. I got to see it. It was like, wow. You can't imagine. It's like going to the mountains. You can't imagine mountains from pictures. You've got to go. Get the full three dimensions. It's like, wow. But it was 75 feet wide, 45 feet high with three levels. Made out of gopher wood, which my steam colleagues just said that just means hardwood. There was no special gopher wood. All it means is hardwood. There's a different cellulose factor to hardwoods and softer woods and things like that. I don't know if I said that right, but there's, if you're a biologist, excuse me. But they, they say there's a difference between the different types of wood. So he says that all it really means is probably hardwoods that he made out of so it would be durable. But the ark was so big, it was probably only maybe not even half full. Even with all the food, the animals only took up probably less than half the room. When they, people have done estimates, how many kinds you would need, how many kinds of dinosaurs even, they found out that it might have only been a third full. There's plenty more room for food and water and a whole lot more humans. Like we talked about this morning, only eight people, including Noah himself, believed and got through that door for salvation. Nobody believed there was going to be a flood, a global flood, because they never saw a flood before. And today, people scoff at the idea that there was a flood. We had all the evidence is still there. You just have to look down in most places, and you're standing on sedimentary rocks. Except maybe not here. But most places in the country is covered by sedimentary rocks. The average dinosaur size, Jeff Tompkins at ICR and I did the math. We looked at 350 dinosaurs, estimated their weights, did the statistics, found out the average dinosaur size, the median size, was the size of a bison or a buffalo. That's the adult size. On the ark, we think God brought juveniles. He didn't bring the 131-foot-long seismosaurus, which you'll see here in a minute, because those might have been 700, 800 years old. Just like humans live to be 800, 900 years old, some of these dinosaurs might have been that old as well. So God probably brought juveniles before their growth spurt. Dinosaurs grew slowly at first, and they took off just like humans do. Look around at these kids that are about eight or nine years old. In a couple years, they're going to be a foot and a half taller. And they're going to eat two pizzas alone. If dinosaurs would have had pizzas, they would eat it too. But there's only about 60 kinds of dinosaurs. These used to be the families of dinosaurs, and they got away from that now. I think Ken Ham and I, we talked, and their group and I, they decided maybe 70 or 80. But that's about the most. You just double that. So all you would have need is 120 dinosaurs on the ark, maybe 140, maybe 160, and that's it. Total, male and female. And if they weren't that big, they might have averaged the size of maybe a sheep after all, because they were probably most likely juveniles. And so you want to get them off the ark and they eat everything in sight, and then start laying eggs and reproduce and fill the earth. That was God's plan. It says in 2 Timothy 4, 4, and this is just the end of it, it talks about how people are going to get their own teachers and hear what they want to hear. 
And he goes on to say, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. That's what we're going to see in the later days. So that's what we see today. The Greek word for fables, the same as the Greek English word myth comes from. So you can substitute myth in there if you want. Turn to myths. And the whole evolutionary story is just a myth created by man to try to explain all life on earth without a God. And they fail miserably because they can't even start life, let alone anything evolving from that first life form. But we'll see. Unfortunately, evolutionary science is, permeates everything that we practically hear and see and touch. It's everywhere. It's in the media. It's in the movies. It's in Jurassic Park. It's in the new Jurassic Parks. Right away, they start talking about millions of years. You, know, you want to go watch some you know, computer animation of dinosaurs. Not only do they have some of the dinosaurs wrong, and they're too big, and Velociraptor is really only this big. They misnamed them purposefully, but they also teach evolutionary ideas like they were warm-blooded. And they would have put feathers on them, but it cost too much money in the first movies, and so the second, third, and fourth, and fifth, and sixth movies, they left the feathers off. But they believed dinosaurs had feathers. All those raptors should have had feathers. There's not one bit of evidence they had feathers. Not one bit. But yet they insist the dinosaurs are birds evolved dinosaurs into birds. But we'll talk about that. The facts are in the rocks. And I had a book with me. Uh, I should have brought it with me. A book by a secular scientist who says rocks don't lie. Well, the rocks don't lie, but people do. The rocks do tell the truth. You guys just haven't got a chance to see the rocks enough. I've looked at a lot of rocks and you'll see the rocks don't lie. That was me when I was much younger, by the way. Much, much younger. Let's just move along. Now I look more like this guy. <laughs> this is Sir Richard Owen. Back in the 18, you know, 19th century, people didn't smile a lot. Apparently, things, there was nothing fun to do in the 18th, 19th century. And there was so much coal going on that everything was black and white because coal dust was making everything black and white. So they're all solemn-looking pictures, and they're always in black and white. It's not quite all true. Hopefully, you know it's not all true. But he did name dinosaurs in 1841. He saw a few scattered bones they had in England from the 1820s, Iguanodon, Megalosaurus, and a couple others, and he said, you know, these seem to be a unique group of reptiles, and they're different because they walked erect with their legs coming straight down. And this is confirmed by all the footprints we see of dinosaurs. We see they walk very, very close together, two-legged or four-legged, their legs come straight down. So dinosaurs are like the left-hand side. They walk upright, they have holes in their hips, and that's what made dinosaurs different. There's a few other things as well, but uh, there was a secular book that came out last year, and he says all these other things other animals might have. The only thing, reptiles that walked erect is unique to dinosaurs. So that the best definition of them is that. Crocodiles, everything else today sprawls. Unfortunately, dinosaurs seem to be extinct today, uh, but we'll get to that later. Dinosaurs, there's a myth out there. Dinosaurs are buried slowly. If you read in your books, they're always trying to make everything slow. That's one of the myths that fossils form slowly. We'll talk about dinosaurs. Another myth is they had many ancestors. This is the whole evolution thing. There's stories out there, you see headlines, new ancestor to T-Rex, new ancestor to this. But do they really have any ancestors? And we'll see the rock, what the rocks really reveal tonight and what the scientists really say. Thirdly, the dinosaurs evolved into birds. That's really big right now. That's why that velociraptor steams up the window. Because to be a bird, you've got to be warm-blooded as well. So they've got to make them warm-blooded then they got to put feathers on them. But yet dinosaurs have to preen their feathers, and they don't have beaks to preen their feathers. 
Dinosaurs would have to move their eggs around. Those theropod eggs that's out there in the back, they laid them in pairs. Well, they find them in the fossil record still in pairs. If they were warm-blooded, the birds would have to turn them. Dinosaurs would have to turn them. And there's no evidence they're exactly the way they were laid. So there's lots of things to show. And the skulls on dinosaurs don't have any nasal or respiratory turbinates in them in the bones, which you and I have to warm the air. Mammals have, the warm-blooded animals have respiratory turbinates. Dinosaurs don't have any. They've studied several skulls of different kinds. So the evidence is actually quite strong that they were cold-blooded, just like reptiles today. So they're nothing like birds, as we'll see more as go along. And of course, there's the story out there that dinosaurs were millions of years old. The oldest dinosaur now supposedly goes back into the middle, almost upper Triassic still, 232 million years ago, to about 66 million years ago. Some of you might have learned 65, but about eight, 10, 12 years ago, they changed it to 66. But what's a million years to you and me? You know, we can't imagine them anyway. So it's just like monopoly money. You just throw the numbers around. Now let's look at myth number one. The dinosaurs were buried slowly. That fossils in general are buried slowly. And this is the type of stuff you read in books from 86. Uh, Dr. Bob Bakker said this. He said, after six months or a year or two, the monsoon rains return. The level of the lakes rises, spreading a soft blanket of limey mud over the sun-dried bodies. So, you know, when you run over an animal, you guys ever hit a bird or squirrel? You have squirrels and there's no squirrels. They like wetlands. What do you guys, what do you guys kill here for roadkill? Coyotes? Armadillos? You have any of those? No? All right. Well, whatever you hit, whatever that gets killed by the side of the road, maybe it's somebody's pet dog, sadly, they don't become fossils. They get eaten by birds, predators, you know, or not predators, scavengers come by and eat them. And they don't, they can't just lay around for months and months and months, even if they're in the water. They get eaten by predators, and sca well, scavengers, really. They eat the, eat the food right up, and then they decay away. So within a few months, there's nothing left. So you can't just sit around waiting like these guys imagine. But they're always trying to make everything slow. And when I wanted to look at fossils in Wyoming, when I dug in Thermopolis, Wyoming, what we see is, in fact, catastrophic burial, where the bones of the animals are torn apart, ripped apart, different species on top of each other, like a big log jam of bones. You rarely find complete specimens. You find almost animals ripped apart in a violent flood event. Even the secular scientists would say this was a big flood, thousand-year flood or a 10,000-year flood. And they find 10,000 myosaur, dinosaurs, all in the same one-mile by three-mile area, all buried in that small little area, 10,000 of the same kind. Massive deposition, massive flooding, but they don't want to believe in the global flood. There's floods all over, but not the global flood. That's what we see, thousands of bones, and they're often mixed with marine fossils. As I look at rocks and papers from all over the world, looking at reports, I see constantly dinosaurs mixed with marine fossils. Dinosaurs mixed in marine rocks. This is what we see in the Hell Creek Formation in Montana, where they find almost all of our T-Rexes. They find, just recently, they upped this to six. Six species of sharks found in the same rock layers. And one of those species was found right below the, where they pulled the bones of Charnosaurus rex suo, the one that's on display at the Field Museum in Chicago, one of the biggest T-Rexes ever discovered. Right below where they pulled the bones out, which was probably a male, by the way. It was a boy named Sue, so Johnny Cash was right. <laughs> yeah, it was just named after the lady that found the specimen. It doesn't really mean it's male or female. Uh, but the, you know, they t t teach you that the bigger ones are females, but they have no basis for that. They actually just kind of make that up. I don't know why. But sharks, six species of sharks, 
But they have to say, oh, they're all freshwater sharks. And they find herring. Oh, they're all freshwater herring. They find coelacanths. Oh, they're all freshwater coelacanths. We'll get to that in a minute. Here's the coelacanths right here on the Spinosaurus. In Morocco, a couple of years ago, I got to hear this, the guy that found this specimen. He came over to Dallas and spoke at SMU. And he said they found car-sized coelacanth fish. Car-sized, those things are car-sized because this dinosaur was about 45 feet long. Biggest meat-eating dinosaur ever discovered. And it was eating these huge fish that are only found in the ocean today, 500 feet down in the ocean. They were one of those classic living fossils. They were supposed to go extinct because they didn't find any fossils of them since the time of the dinosaurs. So they're supposed to be extinct for 66 million years. But they still find them swimming in the Indian Ocean today in two different locations. And they live at 500 feet down. They don't live near the surface. But yet they find them with spinosaurs, and what do the scientists say? And the guy, I asked the guy, I said, how do you explain coelacanths with the dinosaurs? Well, they must have been freshwater fish back then. So you have freshwater sharks, freshwater fish, freshwater clams. All these clams today we find, you know, many of them in the oceans. And we even find dinosaurs in marine rocks like chalk and limestone. The footprints in Glen Rose, Texas are in limestone. Why are they walking out in the ocean? Why are they being buried in ocean rocks? The scientists in Europe did a big study about five years ago, and you can look this up on their Cretaceous dinosaurs. And they looked at the, where they're found, and they found almost all their Cretaceous dinosaurs are found in marine rocks. Not just mixed with marine animals, in marine rocks. And about a week and a half ago, I published online at ICR, the first dinosaurs in Ireland ever discovered. The reason they haven't found them before is they didn't think they had the right kind of rocks there. All they had was marine rocks from the layers that find dinosaurs. They said, that can't be dinosaurs. So the guy found them in the 80s, and he actually passed away before they recognized that these were actually dinosaurs, because they didn't want to believe it. And they even found a dinosaur out in the North Sea, 70 miles offshore. They drilled an oil well, pulled up a core this big around, 60-foot core that big around, 70 miles offshore, one and a half miles down. They pulled up a dinosaur that they could identify as a Plateosaurus, a small bone of a Plateosaurus bone. How did it get 70 miles offshore? There's tremendous waves not only washing dinosaurs and marine fossils in, mixing them together, but tremendous waves were also washing back out, just like tsunami waves do today. Well, these tsunami waves are much bigger, maybe four or 500 feet high, not 30 and 40 feet high. And we know that tsunamis today can kill hundreds of thousands of people like they did in 2004. Very, very dangerous, so they can make a lot of fossils as well. They mix a lot of things. You get immediate death positions, fish eating fish. And you get ichthyosaurs giving birth, live birth, swimming reptile. God designed this to give live birth because it couldn't crawl on land like a turtle. So like mammals, like dolphins, it had to give live birth. And this one was in the process, buried instantly. And my favorite is the fighting dinosaurs. Found in Mongolia by the Polish expedition, I believe in the 70s, they found a velociraptor, again, only about this big, Skull about that big, fighting with the protoceratops. And notice the protoceratops has the velociraptor's arm right in his mouth. He's like a trapped rat. When he's fighting back with all he has is a strong bite. He's about to bite down and snap the arm of the velociraptor, and he got buried instantly. It's like two WWE wrestlers going at it, buried instantly in the chokeholds for thousands of years. Then they dig them up, and there they are. It's called a life assemblage. Is one of the most spectacular discoveries ever, complete specimens, actually doing something. You know, not just knocked over dead. So the myth busting number one is dinosaurs and fossils, all fossils, 
marine fossils or not are from catastrophic burial. You've got to bury things fast, and you've got to bury things deep. If you don't bury them deep, they're going to rot away as well. And I think, unfortunately, out of the humans that survived to the end of the flood, the ones that were regretting for 150 days when the water kept getting higher and higher, they were regretting all the way they didn't get on the ark. They didn't believe. There's going to be a lot of people when they die that are going to regret they didn't make that step for Jesus. They didn't accept Jesus. And it's going to be too late, just like it was for the people of Noah's day. If you didn't get on the ark, your fate was sealed. But people were denying it, denying it, denying it until the water kept coming higher and higher and higher. And then their fate was done. And, but if humans were buried very shallow, they didn't become a fossil. So I think a lot of humans were either washed out to sea and or buried not deep enough to become fossils and rotted away. A lot of fossil dinosaurs, because they were buried deep. Dinosaurs, another myth is that dinosaurs are ancestors. Let's look at this. Here's the seismosaurus I promised you. Again, that's a picture of my daughter, who, again, used to work around the corner when she was about 10. See her there between the legs? Squint really hard. You can maybe see it. This is a seismosaurus. I didn't even get it all on there. It's 131 feet long. They found part of this in New Mexico, just over the border there. They found a, they're digging it up at New Mexico, University of New Mexico, I think. They're still working on it. This is a plastic replica of how big it might have been, 131 feet long. And it's a big, huge sauropod or a long-necked dinosaur. We'll talk about those. God made sauropods very unique so they could do what they did. A large body size, you had to be big. If you're going to have a big, long tail, a big, long neck, you've got to be big. You've got to have a four-legged stance. So all these dinosaurs had four-legged stance. They had a small head. You look at the head in these things, really, really small head in the end. Because if you had a big head, what are you going to do? It's going to kind of lay there all day. You know, God knew enough not to put a big head on a big long neck. And there's 10 or more neck bones. There's no animal today, to my knowledge, has more than you know, that many neck bones. These things had 15, 20 neck bones. Even giraffes, I think, have seven big elongate ones. And their vertebrae are hollow, hollowed out. God not only made them big and long in the neck, a lot of vertebrae, but he hollowed the vertebrae out so they were light, so they could hold their necks up, they could hold their tails up, and it wasn't a lot of effort. They could balance over those four legs and walk along and do their thing, and their tail would sway like a cedar as they walked each step back and forth, back and forth. Where have you heard that before? We'll come back to that a little later, too. So there's the sauropods. Where do we find ancestors? When we look down there to find ancestors of sauropods, or the long necks, like Apatosaurus, they find most of them in the upper Jurassic rocks. There's a few in the Cretaceous, even further up, but they show up suddenly in the upper Jurassic all over the world. And some of them lived in the Cretaceous as well. They're buried at that same level because they lived at the same level in the flood. But we look below that for ancestors and there's nothing down there. There's no half-long necks. There's none with, you know, eight vertebrae and then 12 vertebrae and 15 vertebrae. They just show up suddenly, fully formed, fully designed to walk along these big, long necks and big, long tails. Let's look at ceratopsians. Again, I use my daughter for scale. That's why you have kids, <laughs> right? You have kids for scale, and I find out they cost me a lot of money. Like, huh. Anyway, no, she used to go on a lot of my dinosaur digs with me. My son was bored, so he didn't go. But triceratops, there's one from the University of Wyoming, my old alma mater, right in the museum there. And you can see that huge skulls. Those skulls were one-third. Those are the biggest skulls of all dinosaurs. Triceratops skulls, pretty much the biggest. Well, did they have any ancestors? Well, they had lots of variety. 
This is kind of like looking at you guys around here. That's what I see. Lots of variety. Nobody looks the same. Some of you might be really close because you're brother and sister, or brother and brother, sister and sister, but most of you look a little different. So God loves variety. He loved variety in the dinosaurs as well. But not all of these are different kinds. The kind is a big category. Cat kind, dog kind, stuff like that. Lots of variety. Let's look for their ancestors. Well, we find most of these ceratopsians, like triceratops, horn heads, up in Cretaceous rocks, just like the T-Rex, upper Cretaceous rocks. You look down in the Jurassic or the Triassic, we find nothing that resembles a triceratops. There's no ancestors at all. Take my, if you don't want to believe me, here's Paul Serino. He's a secular paleontologist from the University of Chicago. Done a lot of digs all over the world. He goes early on, I think, researchers and maybe even lay people, like you guys, really felt that we had more ancestors in the fossil rocks than we actually do. We don't have a lot of ancestors, we have a lot of twigs. So when push comes to shove, they admit, well, we don't really have any ancestors. We think we did, but we don't. But why do the lay people get that impression? Because you're constantly telling people in Scientific American, oh, a new ancestor to this, new ancestor to that. But when you look at the rocks, they're not there. How about T-Rex? This is Sue right here, which I think is a male. But it's found by Sue Hendrickson, one of the largest T-Rexes ever discovered. I got the chance to dig on a small T-Rex. There's teeth over there on the left-hand side next to one of my rock hammers for scale. So it's just a little tooth that big. And so it was kind of fun to dig on them. But Paul Serrano said about this. He says, whenever we try to put tyrannosaurs in the history of the theropod dinosaurs, and the theropods are the meat eaters that became meat eaters, he said they have a long missing record. We're going to find that record one of these days. So it's kind of like losing your keys. You know what you're looking for, but you can't find it. And they haven't found any yet. Still haven't found any ancestors. We look in the rocks again. The rocks don't lie. We find T-Rexes up at the top. Same place to find Triceratops, some of the same rock layers in the Hell Creek and things, always in the Upper Cretaceous. And we look below for ancestors, the T-Rexes, and we find nothing. It's an empty sheet, like Paul Serino says. David Weisample, he's looked at more dinosaurs probably than anybody in the last 30, 40 years. He helped write the dinosaur, Dinosauria, which is kind of like the Bible for the dinosaur people. It's not truly like the Bible, it's not truth. The only truth we have is God's Word. So they wrote their dinosaur summary. They, call it, they almost call it their Bible. It goes, from my reading of the fossil record of dinosaurs, again, looked at almost everything, no direct ancestors have been discovered for any dinosaur species. Do you see that? No. It says no direct ancestors have been found for any dinosaur species. And it says, alas, my list is empty. And that's what you see again and again. The rocks don't lie. The rocks really show the truth. So the myth number two is that there are no ancestors to dinosaurs. They just show up fully formed. At the level of the flood, as the waters kept getting higher and higher, they kept burying different environments. Different dinosaurs lived at little different elevations all over the world. So you see the same kind of dinosaurs buried at the same time everywhere, whether you're in Europe or North America or Asia, very similar dinosaurs because the flood was getting higher and higher. All appear without ancestors. There's no known ancestors to any dinosaur groups. Even the secular scientists admit this. Third, dinosaurs evolved into birds. This is really big. That's what they're pushing down the kids in school today. Dinosaurs and birds are the same thing. They're telling you dinosaurs are birds. And the birds, dinosaurs didn't really go extinct. They just turned into birds. 
So you're eating Thanksgiving dinosaur. <laughs> Did anybody eat Thanksgiving dinosaur? It tastes like turkey. I mean, it kind of tastes more like a turkey or maybe a ham. Anyway, dinosaurs evolved into birds. And I don't want to make fun of it, but there's a lot of people that work on this. But they draw pictures like this. And you see this in the news releases all the time. Dinosaurs, this is a velociraptor. What scientists believe velociraptors should have looked like in the Jurassic Park movies. Maybe not the white head, but feathered, fully covered in feathers. But there's not one bit of evidence for this. This is a bird with feathers, Archaeopteryx. Everybody pretty much agrees. This is found in late or upper Jurassic rocks, in the middle of the dinosaur rocks. So dinosaurs are only found in Triassic, Jurassic, and Cretaceous levels because that's where the, their environments were buried at that level in the flood. And so they're found kind of in the middle of it. So we have birds right in the middle of the dinosaur rock layers. Everybody agrees this bird could fly like a pheasant. It couldn't fly really well. There's about 11 specimens now found in Germany, southern Germany, Bavaria. And so it's a really fine-grained rock, so it preserves the feathers. And most of them show feathers. You see the head's back because it was suffocating. As they got buried so fast, kind of curled back. Very, very common position. That's a true bird. This is a, not a bird, but it's claimed to have proto-feathers. See those little hair-looking structures coming off the tail and off the back? That's what scientists call proto-feathers. These are evolving feathers. Feathers are starting to come out. They had to look like this first, and they became real feathers. And even some secular scientists dealt this as well, like Alan Fiducia. So he did a study. But here's what Stephen Brousset, who believes dinosaurs became birds. He said, the bones of these species are covered with a thick, feathery fluff. Not the quill pen feathers of living birds, but simpler filament-like feathers that look like hair. That's what we just looked at here. It kind of looks like hair. Well, Alan Fiducia, in 2005, actually did some empirical science. And he took a dolphin, part of a dolphin, and he squished it. And he demonstrated similar structures are produced just by decomposition of collagenous fibers in the skin. We all have collagen in our skin. It's a big protein that's very durable, makes up leather. It's in our skin as well. So when you squish things, like he did this dolphin, he got these hair-like structures coming off the side. Dolphins don't have hair like that. They might have some hair because they're a mammal, but they don't have protofeathers coming off. But he simulated their protofeathers with a dolphin. And he showed that's exactly what you're looking at with these dinosaurs. These are real feathers here, just like Archaeopteryx. This is Microraptor. This is a real bird that had feathers coming off its back legs. He just had a bony tail. So these are extinct birds today. They couldn't fly that well, probably like a pheasant. And so they couldn't swim. They couldn't swim in the water. It kept getting higher. They couldn't fly forever. And they actually drowned or were buried earlier than some of the dinosaurs. But this was a bird. But what worries me is many of these feathers come from one place in China, feathered, so-called feathered dinosaurs. And there's actually been frauds that come out. This is one fraud. There's a couple others. This is the most famous one. In 1999, National Geographic, some of you might have the issue. I had a real tough time trying to find it in Dallas. All the libraries seem to have that issue missing. But I finally found it downtown Dallas in their library in a bound book because I threw mine away. But in 1999, they announced a National Geographic had an hour-long TV show and a big write-up about their dinosaur bird, you know, Archaeoraptor, they called it. It's a missing link between dinosaurs and birds. They finally had the proof they wanted to see, what their itching ears wanted to hear, like Second Timothy says. They finally found it. Well, they found out when they CT scanned it, it was two different animals glued together. One was a bird and one was a dinosaur. So it looked like a half-bird, half-dinosaur. But it was a fake. And they paid $70,000 for this at the Rock and Mineral Show in Tucson. 
The first mistake is naming a new dinosaur, or whatever they want to call it, from something you didn't pull out of the rocks yourself. If you don't pull the rock, pull it out yourself, you can't name something new because you get frauds. It broke the rules of accepted rules of science, but they didn't care because they saw what they wanted to see and they fooled all the world's renowned scientists and all of them were backpedaling their friends. Oh, no, no, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. You know, you should have, it was, it was embarrassing to science. And about a year later, National Geographic published a little retraction in the back of one of their issues in, I think, the November 2000 issue. Well, you know, it's, uh, things happen. And, but it was a fake. So there's really no feathered dinosaurs at all. And there's no feathered T-Rexes. They did have to admit this in 2017. New research in 2017 in biology letters said, shows without question T-Rex had scaly skin. And it pained them not to say this because they want all theropods, all these meat eaters to have feathers. They want to have T-Rex with feathers. You still find pictures on the internet with T-Rex with feathers. Yet they showed in 2017 they didn't have feathers. They had scaly skin, just like this. Here's T-Rex skin. We have thousands of skin imprints of dinosaurs, and they always show scaly skin. There's no feathered dinosaurs. Unfortunately, there are some creation scientists, creation paleontologists, that are on YouTube, and they'll tell you that there's feathered dinosaurs. But those are not dinosaurs. They walk completely differently. The hip structure tells you. The short arms tell you. Birds and dinosaurs walk completely different. Birds have their thighs inside their body, and they walk on their knees. Dinosaurs balance on the hips, like you and I do, whether they're four-legged or two-legged. So they're completely different. But unfortunately, even creation scientists get caught up in the secular hype. If you don't look at the data, go back to the rocks and look. So this is the biggest problem, which is often overlooked and is admitted to by some scientists. The biggest problem is you've got the most bird-like dinosaurs that they claim, like the raptors, are found in upper to middle Cretaceous rocks, upper levels of the dinosaur rock layers. But you find that Archaeopteryx, that true bird with the feathers, down in the Jurassic rocks the middle of the dinosaur range. So you've got a big problem here. How do you have a bird becoming something that is supposed to be the ancestor to birds in rocks below it? You guys get that? So you basically, you've got the grandchild before the grandparent. How do you do that? Well, that's not a problem, kids. But we'll get to that. The dinosaurs in China are not the ancestors of the birds, of course. Gunther Weil says from the Euro Museum in Germany, he says they can't be because they are later than Archaeopteryx, the true bird. So there must have been older birds with, or dinosaurs with feathers, yet we haven't found any evidence of them, unfortunately. So the facts show they don't have any. So what do scientists do? That doesn't stop them. So up there we have Deinonychus and Velociraptor and everything in Cretaceous rocks. You have the Archaeopteryx in Jurassic rocks. And what do they do? They draw a dashed line down from the Velociraptors down to the Triassic or somewhere. Then they draw a dashed line down from the Archaeopteryx down to an unknown ancestor to both. There must have been an ancestor down there below. We just haven't found it yet, unfortunately, as he said. So these are called unknown ancestors, which will always remain unknown. That's my scientific prediction. These will always remain unknown. And when you see dashed lines in science, that means you're making it up. They're making this up to fit their preconceived idea that dinosaurs evolved into birds, when the rocks support the exact opposite. The rocks support the birds turned into dinosaurs. But they don't want to see it that way. Actually, none of them turned into anything. 
God made birds on day five, made dinosaurs on day six. Completely different types of animals. There's no unknown, unknown ancestor. So myth-busting three is this. You, know, you won't see this running around your backyard unless you're near a nuclear power plant, uh, maybe. Downwind of Chernobyl. Dinosaurs did not have feathers or evolve into birds. Di- you know, birds are buried in rocks before bird-like dinosaurs. To me, the rocks don't lie. Once again, you've got birds down here and the most somewhat bird-like dinosaurs up here. But they're not as bird-like as they say. So you've got to justify that. You can't just make stuff up. You can't make up ghost lineages, as they call it, and call that science. Where's the science in making something up? How's that science? How do you test something that's made up? You can't. But the rocks show the exact opposite of what they're trying to say. So let's look at the final point tonight, is that dinosaurs are 232 million years old, and that can vary a little bit, because sometimes they make them a little older. My first edition of my book said 225, because that's what it was, and they found them a little bit deeper. Oh, we found them 232 now. They're, give or take a million years. 266 million, which used to be 65. But again, what's a few million years to you and me? But what do we find in the rocks? In 2005, and even before that, we look back, my colleague Brian Thomas looked back and he found there's actually earlier discoveries of original dinosaur proteins, even before Mary Schweitzer really made the news. She was on CBS News and she was on all the news media and, and scientists were scoffing at her saying, that can't be, that's nonsense, they're not real. But she found original proteins, that little video, if we showed a video clip, an A over there, that little white band would actually stretch the rubber band and come back. This is what she found in a T-Rex thigh bone that broke open, found in the Hell Creek Formation in Montana. And she dissolved away too much bone, and she found all the soft, squishy red stuff and white stuff that stretched. So she did it again. She did it again. She did it again. Kept finding the same thing. And she didn't know what to do because she didn't want to publish stuff, and people would scoff at her and say, you made this up. But she showed that it's original, original proteins. It did more and more chemical tests. These are original proteins original collagen. And collagen, one of the most durable proteins out there, can't even last a million years. Physical chemists have studied the decay of these things with time under pristine conditions. In a laboratory study, they can't even last a million years, and yet these are supposed to be 68 million years old. And since then, there have been 100 papers to find even more of these published in secular journals. Even T-Rex Zoo in Chicago, unpublished, Mary Schweitzer came to Dallas and told us there's even original proteins and blood vessels in Tyrannosaurus rex Sioux in Chicago. Almost every T-Rex they look at has original proteins, original blood vessels. Here's some of the blood vessels they admitted to a couple years ago, 2017, original blood vessels that are still flexible, just like your blood vessels are flexible. How can these things be 195 million years old and still be original? You can see the osteocytes, those little hairy-looking things, those three little brown dots, those are bone-making cells with all the little philia and stuff are still there. And that's the blood vessel coming through, and those little black dots are red blood cell-like things. They won't admit they're red blood cells. Not quite yet, but that's what those probably are. But that's the flexible blood vessels that they find in these things. How can they be there if they're millions of years old? It's amazing to me they can be there after 4,300 and some years since the flood. Because they're out in Montana where they're finding these, and there's been rain, snow, and thaw, and you know, much harsher winters than you get here in Arizona. And the rocks are right there, the fossils are right there. How do they survive inside the bones? It's just amazing. And there's actually a lot of evidence of human interaction with dinosaurs. I know they're scoffed at, but look at some of these things we see. We see lots of petroglyphs and carvings and 
even in the Bible we talk about this. It says in Job 40, Behold now Behemoth, which I made with you. God is talking about he made the dinosaurs on day six, along the same day he made Adam and Eve. He goes, he eats grass like an ox, the strength is in his loins, the force in his muscles of his belly. He moves his tail like a cedar. His bones are like bars of iron. So his leg bones are bars of iron. You know, not literally, but they're really solid. The backbone was hollowed out. The neck bones were hollowed out, so they were lighter, but the leg bones were solid. And you can study the leg bones of these animals. You see they're really, really solid. We're going to dig some up this summer, hopefully. ICR's got a science crew up, to, up near the Black Hills where our boss, Dr. Randy Galuza, actually has some sauropod bones on his land. He's finding bones this big. A couple years ago, I went up there and he was showing me the view of his, from his house to Devil's Tower about two miles away. And I'm looking down going, that's the Jurassic Morrison formation. I can tell by the colors. Uh, let me go down to look and see if there's any dinosaurs. And he's like, yeah, whatever. 20 feet out of his front door, there's dinosaur bones. He didn't even know they were there. So he's been digging them up you know, ever since, finding a bunch of bones. So we're going to go up there and do a little excavating this summer. But people don't even know they have the bones. It's like right there. I'm not that smart, but... I can tell the Morris information because it's color-coded. It's got really cool purples and reds, and it's pretty obvious. But usually there's no bones. You've got to find a bone bed, and he has a bone bed underneath his cabin or under his house there. So we've got to go underneath, dig it all out, destroy his house. <laughs> he doesn't want to do that. But you think about grass. Let me talk about that grass for a while. People scoffed at this for a long time and said, this can't be a dinosaur because dinosaurs and grass didn't even coexist. In the evolutionary world, they don't have any fossil grass until after the Cretaceous, when dinosaurs disappear in the rock record. So, but grass is hard to fossilize. You know, it's just little blades. And so what they did in 2005, again, I believe, in India, they found sauropod dinosaurs. And with the sauropod dinosaurs, they found dinosaur dung. And when you look at what horses drop behind in a parade or something, you see what horses eat, you can tell what they ate. Well, they could study the dung of these sauropods, and they found five species of grass. I just won five species of grass. Sauropods, like described here in Job 40, were really eating grass. So they had to go back and paint all their paintings and add some grass to them. And a lady was talking about this when she was presenting Sue in, in my hometown of Midland, Michigan. Sue was on tour. The one, the one replica of Sue goes on tour. I don't know if it came here or not. And they had a painting. She's like, yeah, we painted this and there's no grass, you know, just blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, afterwards, I went, like, you know, they just found grass. I didn't want to embarrass her in front of the public. And so she's like, really? So I referred her to the paper that came out. And they're like, oh. And then they called me up later. Oh, thanks for telling us. So we'll stop saying things that are wrong now. I mean, you got to try. It's hard to keep up. It really is. But, I, but she, you know, like, now they have to admit there's grass. And the, the Bible was right all along. How many times do we look at the Bible and think, that can't be? Leviathan couldn't have breathed fire. We just haven't found it yet. If the Bible says it, it's true, folks. Dinosaurs, these sauropods in particular, ate grass. We find this fossil grass right with their bones. But nobody believed it, because they didn't think grass evolved till then. We can go to Egypt and look at the Narmer palate. See there, circled in red, you see two long neck looking animals. But notice the legs come straight down. Nobody knew what dinosaurs looked like until 1841. How would the ancient Egyptians draw these big long-necked animals with a couple of ropes around their necks by some Egyptians? Big long necks, big long tails curled up, and the legs coming straight down if they hadn't seen dinosaurs. They're not sprawling like reptiles today. 
It comes straight down. We see the same thing here in the Mesopotamian cylinder when you roll it out. You see long-necked dinosaur-looking things. And notice the legs, they come straight down. Just like the sauropods we put in our museums today. I'm sure it looks like a little lion's head maybe on it. They might not have got the head right, but they got the general shape right. Little head and the big long neck, long tails, and legs coming straight down. There's no way they knew the legs on these animals came straight down if they hadn't seen them. Because we didn't know that until 1841. All reptiles today sprawl, drag their bellies in the dirt and the mud. And here's the Carlisle Cathedral from 1478. It's under a rug today. It's gotten worn off from people walking on it. And you can see again, animals that look like sauropods with the legs coming straight down. This is 400 years almost, not quite, before they discovered dinosaurs. Before they knew that they walked with their legs coming straight down. But yet the secular community says, oh, that's just coincidence. Well, we see it again and again and again. Then you go to Cambodia from about the 11th or 12th century. In Cambodia, we have a replica of this in our Discovery Center, our museum over in Dallas. We have the whole thing. Shows lions, monkeys, water buffalo, dinosaur. They're all real animals except this. This is supposed to be some mythical thing. But it looks just like a stegosaurus, except the head's maybe a little big. The legs come straight down, like dinosaurs do, and this plate stick up on the back. It's uncanny. But you can say, oh, it's just coincidence. And, you know, maybe it is. But how would they know the legs come straight down? All these animals throughout history. And there's, there's, there's hundreds more of these all around Europe, paintings of dragons and things with the legs coming straight down. To me, dinosaurs are young. The soft tissues you're finding in dinosaurs, it's empirical evidence because you can find it again and again and again. You can test it again and again and again. And secular science has no real explanation. They will talk about now in their textbooks there's chemical fossils, but they don't talk about the implications of them. And they say, well, we know they found these proteins and these fossils, and there's 100 papers now, and by tomorrow there'll be 102 papers, and it just keeps more and more and more, and they don't explain how they can be old. But they still insist they're old, in spite of what physical chemists have shown, that these things can't last that long, they would decay away, even under the best conditions, in less than a million years. If these are supposed to be 68 million, 195 million, even up to 500 million years old, they found worm fossils that are still flexible in the lowest flood rocks of the Cambrian. And they're still original proteins. So how can these things still survive all that much time? And there's even carbon-14 dating of dinosaurs above measurable levels in carbon-14, above any sort of contamination levels you could imagine. Because we have such good equipment today, they can eliminate much contamination, but they still find carbon-14 in dinosaurs as well. Measurable amounts. Now they get them back to say they're, you know, in today's rates, 40,000 years old and things like that, like the Ice Age fossils, because in the pre-flood world, there was probably less carbon-14. So everything looks older than they are today because there's a very small amount, but there's enough to still measure carbon-14 in almost every dinosaur bone that's ever been tested. And in coal, and in oil, always measurable carbon-14, and they just say, oh, that's contamination, but they never explain how they get contaminated. But to me, these original proteins, the real, original tissues are as good of evidence as you can get. This is as close to proof as you can get in a historical or forensic science like geology, and yet it's just kind of ignored. And the implication, well, we know they're still millions of years old, we just don't know how they were preserved. 
So the goal now is to go out and try to explain how they could be preserved, and they've come up pretty much with nothing. There's been a few attempts, but not very good explanations. Fossils don't take long to form. They don't sit around for millions of years. They don't sit around for six months waiting for the slowly to get buried like Bob Bakker believes. They just take the right conditions, and the flood provided those conditions. Most fossils we see were the flood. There are a few fossils found in Ice Age sediments after the flood because they, you know, have frozen animals in Siberia and Alaska. Some got caught in some muck, like in my home state of Michigan or in Florida, and those bones are preserved. Uh, but after that, there's really not fossils forming. You need special conditions, and the flood provided those. Again, here we were plastering up some bones in Thermopolis there. Four evolutionary myths that you hear all the time, and they're all busted. Dinosaurs are not buried slowly. You don't wait a year for an animal to die and bury it. It would have been gone. It would have decayed away or been eaten away. Dinosaurs are buried rapidly in the flood. Number two, dinosaurs did not have ancestral forms. There's not one ancestral form. Animals just show up fully formed. Not just dinosaurs, all fossils show up fully formed, even trilobites in the lowest levels, with compound eyes, fully formed, with no ancestors any of them. They stay for a while, they go through what they call stasis, and then they disappear. It doesn't mean they went extinct, it just means that they disappeared at that level in the rocks. Because we find many of them still living today, like the coelacanth. And dinosaurs lived for a while after the flood, based on the book of Job, based on these carvings. For maybe for a few thousand years, dinosaurs survived, at least some of them. Those knights were killing, not dragons, they were killing small dinosaurs probably. And these legends of dinosaurs and knights in giant armor, there's probably some truth to those, because they probably were killing the dinosaurs that were still around. Dinosaurs did not evolve into birds. That's a really big thing you'll hear in your schools today, if you're going to school, if you're going to college or high school or junior high or even elementary school. They'll talk about dinosaurs turning into birds. There's no evidence that any dinosaur had feathers. There's no evidence that dinosaurs turned into birds. And again, the rocks support that you had birds buried in rocks much lower than the so-called bird-like dinosaurs. In their worldview, 40 to 70 million years of time. You already had birds, and then the dinosaurs that are supposed to turn into birds come along later? That's, it's just utter nonsense. That's not science. That's just making things up. Those ghost lineages are made up. You know, I challenge anybody that, show me the, show me the, show me the money. You know, show me the evidence. And even some of the secular scientists admit to that. And dinosaurs are not old. The only way to explain those Preserved proteins. And even oil. Oil is another preserved protein. It was buried in rocks, marine algae mostly, buried in rocks. And you bury it deep enough just to cook the oil out. The Earth's internal heat cooks the oil out. And within about 200 years after the flood, humans are using oil as part of their mortar at the Tower of Babel. So oil doesn't take long to form either, but it's an organic compound that can't be that old. When I was at Chevron, they said the oil in Wyoming was 150 million years old. It's just been sitting there for us to tap into. You know, and you think about fluid flow and groundwater flow, that's just nonsense. There's bacteria everywhere. At Yellowstone, the bacteria is almost to the point of boiling. That's where those colors are in those pools in Yellowstone. There's bacteria everywhere. As deep as we've drilled, three miles down, there's bacteria eating away at things like oil. And most oil is biodegraded to a great degree. Same thing with these organic tissues. How can they survive? But if they're thousands of years old, you get a better chance. Millions is ridiculous. You know, it's uh, 
pretty remarkable to think about the truth of God's word that is unassailable. The, the remarkable thing about truth is it doesn't matter what anybody says about it, it is still true. And if nobody agreed with God's word, God's word would still be true. Let every man be a liar. Uh, God would remain faithful. Uh, but the denial of biblical truth, especially about creation, has significant consequences for everything else we believe. You think about what God says about uh, the, the great conspiracy theory that the world is under. Uh, Satan is the god of this world who blinds the minds of unbelievers. But what is it that breaks through satanic blinding? It is the light of the gospel in, of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And it is remarkable that the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who shines the light of the gospel in our hearts. And that little phrase, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, harkens us back to Genesis chapter one, when God said, let light be. And light, which did not previously exist, obeyed the voice of God and obeyed by coming into existence and existed. And it's amazing that our very salvation points back to the biblical truth of creation. We have a creator with redemptive purpose, and we have a redeemer with creative power. The one who brought everything into existence did so to bring himself glory in part by bringing sinners to himself by his grace through Jesus Christ. If you deny him at the creation level, you undermine him as redeemer. And flip that around. You recognize that for anyone to be brought out of darkness into light requires supernatural power, like the power God displayed when he said, let light shine out of darkness. Let light be. Things that didn't exist came into existence. For someone dead in transgressions and sins to be made alive requires ex nihilo creative power. And that's the point. We deny God as creator. We miss him as redeemer. You can't have one or the other. And so, Dr. Claire, I just want to thank you again for bringing us the truth of God's word and for the ways you've seen it in the rocks. Appreciate it. Thanks. I'm sorry if I confused people with my humor. Sometimes you couldn't tell. Well, look, if you were joking about volume two, we took you seriously, and now you're stuck. Okay. I, I, I feel bad for you guys because you're stuck here having to listen to me twice. But it's double feature night. Somebody said they didn't think they happened anymore. So we're going to do it. And uh, I, you guys are either gluttons for punishment or you wanted to learn. So we're going to learn a little, we're going to learn a little something, as we say in Wyoming. Now, the truth of the flood, let's get right going into this. Well, I want to thank my co-author here, Davis J. Warner. Uh, he's the guy that puts the maps together. He's a college student. We, that's his fake name, because we don't want to out him before he goes to grad school. They can Google your name now and find out, oh, he's a creationist. So we're going to deny him his degrees. And that's happened. So let's go back and do that again, because you guys missed it. Anyway, Davis J. Warner is, uh, works in our office part-time. He's going to school to finish his bachelor's in geology. And, uh, but he's a guy that really takes the data I put in, and he makes the maps out of them. They look kind of nice. You're going to see tonight. Uh, you might say it could be better. But did God say there was a global flood? And it harkens back to Genesis. Did God say, like the serpent told Eve, did God say there was a global flood? Was it local? That's what you hear all the time. Old earth people say it's local. Even secular geologists say it was local, but the evidence is not local, it's global, as we'll see. Many influential leaders, both in the church and universities, 
high schools deny the global flood. They teach a local flood. If any flood, just affecting the Mediterranean or you know, the Baltic Sea or somewhere over there, and an old earth. There's only one person I ever met that believed in an old earth and a global flood, which I didn't quite understand, but usually local earth and old, you know, local flood and old earth. I think we talked about this this morning. Second Peter 3, it says, There shall come in the last days scoffers walking up to their own lusts, for this they willingly are ignorant of, and they willingly just ignore that the Bible could be true, that by the word of God the heavens are of old, the earth stand out of water, in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed to water perished. They deliberately forget. And maybe they don't actually come out and scoff at it. Some of them do, some of them don't. But they willingly are ignorant. Not stupid. Some of these guys are much, much smarter than me. But they're willingly ignorant. They, they want to believe in God. They want an alternative story. And that's what they've developed over the last century and a half. An alternative story to God's word try to explain the origin of life, the origin of the universe, everything else. But God says in Psalm 119, he says, thy word is true from the beginning, which starts with Genesis 1.1 and goes to Revelation 22.21. Every verse is truth. And if you describe the flood, that really happened. And we see the evidence for that. That's the amazing thing. That's what I get to do. I get to show the evidence of the truth of God's word. If you can believe in a global flood, you can... Believe almost anything in the Bible, can't you? That's one of the biggest hang-ups people have. They can't believe there's a global flood. But look at three truths of the flood from the Bible and the truth of the Bible as well. Because the Bible is really on trial here. The clarity of the Bible. Can you read it the way it's written? Or do you have to have somebody to interpret it for you? Can you read Genesis 1 through Genesis 11 the way it's written as history? Or do you have to have someone say, oh, those are just stories? My wife worked in a church... School and the people there just believed it was stories. They didn't believe there was a real ark. They didn't believe there was a real Jonah. But yet Jesus talked about both of these things. The days of Noah he talked about. He talked about Jonah. Global flood is real, we're going to see. It's catastrophic and it was recent. Same sort of evidence we already talked about. But I'll review that again quickly. So the first point I want to talk about mostly is the global flood. That's the longest part of our story here tonight in this talk. Is this. The secular scientists believe in six floods. They just don't believe in one big global flood. They believe the Earth flooded six times, and what this tries to show in this graph is those green blobs kind of go, the water sea level goes up and goes down, goes up, goes down, goes up and down, up and down over millions of years. So the water came in, flooded a lot of the continents, and then backed off, and that's their story. Because they see the evidence of marine influence up in Montana. They see the evidence of marine influence across Europe. They see these marine fossils, sometimes they actually admit to them. And so they admit that there was flooding. And they gave them names, these big packages of tsunami waves that came in and left sediments. They called them after North American tribes of Indians, the Sauk, the Tippecanoe, the Kaskaskia, the Absarica, the Zuni, and the Tejas. But what does number one through six? Laid down from bottom to top. Just like you're throwing rocks out there, you've got to throw the bottom layer first. So we'll go through these as chapters, these mega sequences as chapters of the flood. And we'll look at each chapter and see what was happening. And you'll see that it fits exactly with what the Bible says. To me, that's the most amazing thing that I came to the conclusion in my book because it all makes sense. The Bible really does have the history book of the world. And there really was a global flood, as you'll see. Remember, the flood happened over a year. My wife always wants to remind everybody in here that the flood wasn't just 40 days. 
My students I teach at Liberty, they always answer that question. For no, flood lasts 40 days. And they get it wrong every time. It was just 40 days of rain, and then things got really bad. You know, initially, it wasn't flooding much of the earth, I don't think. It was flooding mostly shallow seas. So it only refers to the 40 days of rain, and then it started to really flood the land. That's the ark starts to float after day 40. And things got really bad. And you'll see there was a big turn. That's when people regretted that they didn't get on the ark. First 40 days, well, okay, a lot of rain. A lot of flooding going out in the oceans down there. But when it started to flood the land, that's when people started to get worried. And it kept getting higher and higher and higher, as we'll see. So what I looked at is, of course, I assume the Bible is true. There really was a global flood. And I look at the rocks, observable oil well data, observable rocks that you can measure. Like around here, you can see the rocks. If you had sediments, you could measure how thick they were. In every location, we can see them at the earth. And with oil wells, we can measure how thick they are. So if you drilled wells from here all the way to the crust, in Texas, you might have 10,000, 15,000 feet of sedimentary rocks. That's what we put in our database. So I'm mapping out the sedimentary rocks and some of the volcanic rocks all over the world, continent by continent. You'll see four continents tonight. We've got about 2,700 columns now combined all over the world. There's, you'll see the data points on here as we go along. So let's go with what the Bible says first. Because we're going to go with what the Bible says, and we'll show you what the rocks show to support that as we go along. The first one, I kind of glossed over it, but it's very important. The fountains of the deep burst forth on day one. In 600 years of Noah's life, again, very specific, because it's history, where all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. And so what happened here was you opened up a bunch of plates, cracked a bunch of plates all over the earth. Whether it was a miracle or there was something going on that God set in motion, I'm not sure, but suddenly it had all these cracks open up all over the earth, and out came lava, out came water. Lots of lava. This, make, this made the tectonic plates, the beginnings of tectonic plates on earth. Earth is unique. It's the only planet that has tectonic plates. The only planet that has tectonic plates. Well, this is where they started. It was just a paper last week that came out trying to figure out when did plate tectonics begin? Scientists still struggle with where did plate tectonics begin? They struggle with where did the continents come from? The Bible tells us day three. Plate tectonics probably started right here, the first day of the flood. And they started to move. And as they move, they make earthquakes and tsunami waves. You start to get tsunamis, but the first burst in the oceans and across the continents. I believe the mid-continent rift it comes to Lake Superior all the way down to Iowa. Might have been part of this initial fountains of the deep bursting. Thousands of feet of, actually 12 miles of lava poured out in some places. In this very narrow rift about the size of the Red Sea. Split kind of North America. But all over the earth we had these cracks that opened up. And then subduction began. Rapid subduction like Dr. John Baumgartner showed in his computer models. One of the most sophisticated computer models ever created. Showed that this stuff would actually happen fast. Meters per second or several miles per hour. Not slow rates like this much per year, but very, very rapidly. And so these plates started to move, and as they moved, of course, they made tsunamis. And then the Bible goes on and says, the rain is on the earth four days and 40 nights. So here we are. I'm going to look at chapters 1 to 3 very quickly, because they all kind of do the same thing. And they leave the same results. So this is what I believe the first 40 days. We'll see why later. So the Salk, typically, you know, Kaskaskia. This includes the Cambrian, Ordovician, Silurian, Devonian, Mississippian, if you're more familiar with those names. These are almost all marine fossils. There's very few land fossils at all. You know, less than one-tenth of one percent. A few got washed in there. So you're mostly flooding what I believe is shallow marine areas of the earth. And you started washing tsunami waves. And you start moving plates, you're going to get tsunamis. 
And John Baumgartner figures there were hundreds of tsunamis a day being generated. Tremendous tsunamis, bigger than the one here in Japan by far. And it might have been not just 30 or 40 feet, but maybe 100, 200 feet high. Maybe even bigger as we go later into the flood. And this is what was deposited in that first sequence, the sock sequence. This is the, shows the extent in blue. In green, it's really thick. But the dark blue, the darkest blue is, is really thin. But where it's white, there's nothing. So I kind of cut off Asia because I wasn't done yet. So you got Europe, North America, Africa, South America, across the Atlantic. And you can see there's only partial coverage of South America, partial coverage of Africa, only the North, and only partial coverage of Europe. North America has a lot more coverage because I believe North America, a lot of it was a shallow sea. So if you flood in the shallow seas, you're going to flood a lot. But the other continents are pretty much high and dry. But Canada was dry. Greenland was dry. They were all together at the time as well. So let's look at North America a little more closely. What we see, the very first layer deposited. You guys can go to Grand Canyon and see this. You can see the Tapit Sandstone, the bottom of Grand Canyon down there, right on top of the Precambrian Crystalline Rock. It's pretty much continuous. That yellow is a sandstone. It's a blanket sand, which, again, secular scientists can't explain blanket sands because the sand average is about as thick as this room across the entire United States. How do you deposit a sandstone that's all about this thick, maybe sometimes twice as thick, maybe a few hundred feet thick, across the entire United States, from Arizona to Michigan to the maritime provinces up in Canada and up around Alberta? and all the way up, up northernmost Greenland. They're kind of swirled around. The blue is some limestone in Alaska. That's a different story. But notice there's no California. California didn't exist, except a very small part of it. Washington, Oregon didn't exist. Those were added on later, that subduction process. Basically, as the ocean crust was going underneath, it left all the ocean sediments behind. It's like pulling the rug up from underneath it. And those ocean sediments got smeared onto California and became California. So California's geology is all screwed up. Explains a lot. <laughs> if you're from California, I'm sorry, but it's true. The geology of California in Oregon and Washington is all screwed up, and British Columbia too. That whole area was added on during the flood, so it didn't exist here yet, but you covered everywhere except Canada. And actually, Florida in the southeast was part of Africa still. And so there's, there's some plate movement that's going on. But you see down the middle, there's kind of a white trend coming down. There should be actually more than that. Some of these data points overgeneralized. Uh, when I was using a database provided by the government, they weren't as accurate. They were kind of generalizing things. But notice Canada's high and dry. It didn't flood there yet. And we can go to the Pitchard Rocks, my home state of Michigan. See, if you go back, way up there, the very tip of the lower peninsula and upper peninsula of Michigan, you see the Pitchard Rocks in Lake Superior. Same rocks as down here in Grand Canyon. We took the picture of Deer Creek Falls in Grand Canyon, one of my trips through. It's the same stuff. You go to Texas, drill down 15,000 feet, it's there too. The oil wells show that this is continuous sand everywhere. The names just change from place to place. We go to the second sequence, we see almost the same sort of coverage in Africa, just North Africa, a little bit in South Africa, same area of Europe, a little bit more in South America now, and even a little less in North America. And you go to the Kaskaskia, the third sequence, this is deposited a lot of limestone. This is the red wall limestone. There's actually limestone across most of the United States as well at this point in the Mississippi. But again, you see a little more coverage in South America. You still don't see much coverage in Africa, it's just North Africa and southernmost tip of Africa. And you still don't see much in Canada except a little bit in Hudson Bay. 
The high grounds were still not flooded. Most of the land was still not flooded at this point. Even Europe, most of it was a little bit more flooding, but you still weren't flooding the land. And the fossils reflect that. The fossils in these first three sequences are all marine fossils, 99.9% .9 marine fossils. So there's no evidence you're flooding the land yet, and you only see partial coverage. So what happens? So on my maps, I drew this as the shallow seas. Then we move up higher. What does the Bible say? So I think around day 40 to maybe day 150, which I think is the high point of the flood, we read this, and the flood was 40 days upon the earth. And the waters increased and bare up the ark, actually launched the ark, according to the Hebrew. And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. So what is God telling us that happened in Genesis 7? He says the water increased, prevailed, increased greatly, prevailed exceedingly. We read that for what it says, what's it telling you? The water got higher, got higher, got higher yet. Until eventually it went over the top. When he goes on to say it was day 150. It's pretty clear. There's some creation organizations that'll say that everything flooded right away. But the rocks don't support that, and neither does, I don't believe, the biblical text. It shows a progressive flood, and that's exactly what we see. So now the, the ark is launched. We're now flooding the land, because I assume Noah built the ark on land. And so we should see land fossils. We should see coal seams from land plants. Sure enough, we do in the Epsirica. The Epsirica is when things got bad if you were a human. And you're going to start going, oh, that was bad that I didn't get on the ark. Why didn't I believe Noah? They could have walked through that door. There was room for thousands of more people on the ark. Since only eight people got on, God said, bring two of some more of the, unclean, you know, the clean animals on. Bring some more of the seven of the unclean animals on. There's plenty of room. Bring some more unclean, or clean animals on. We'll get it right. Bring more clean animals at the last minute. But more people could have got on. But at this point, they're really starting to regret. You might be 40, 50 days into the flood. 40, 50 days is a long time. But now it's starting to flood the land. The judgment was a slow judgment that took place over 150 days. And there's going to be another judgment coming. But we can escape that. God has also opened the door through Jesus to escape the coming judgment as well. God provides a way out. Unfortunately, very few humans took the first chance. More of us, I think, are taking the, the chance that Jesus opened up. But he always provides a way out. The Epsirica got really bad. The continents started to really split and move around rapidly and making a whole new seafloor as it went along. So eventually Africa and South America split, but that was more than the Cretaceous. And you made a whole new seafloor. I think I talked about this this morning. All those colors represent the ages. The red is the youngest. Green is a little older and blue is the oldest. Notice the green and the blues are gone underneath North America and South America because it's been pushed and subducted underneath. But in the Atlantic, we see a mirror image of each other. It's split right across. And so all this happened. In starting The oldest ocean crust we have goes back to the Epsirica. It's not a coincidence that everything really started to happen in the Epsirica. Things started really flooding the earth and flooding the land. We see the water started to push up from below. The more ocean crust you make, the more it pushes up from below. And so the water levels got higher. Each tsunami wave coming in then was higher. Make more ocean crust, it goes higher. More ocean crust, more it goes higher yet. And this is when we see the ocean crust really start being made in a massive amount all over the earth. 
So the tsunami waves come crashing in, and they strip away the vegetation, and they deposit coal seams. First coal seams all over the world are the Pennsylvanian coals for the most part. There's a few before that, but most major coal seams begin the Pennsylvanian. And then later we see even more massive coals in the receding phase of the flood, but they're different types of plants at that point. But these are the lycopod coals, the swamp coastal coals that were buried first in Europe and the stuff in the East Coast of the United States. The stuff in Wyoming, that came later. But those are higher level trees of higher hills yet, as we'll see. And the first land animals mixed with marine animals, always mixed. And the coal seams all show up. It's not a coincidence all this is happening in the Epsarica because now you're flooding the land. You're making so much seafloor, the water went high enough to start flooding the land. Launches the ark and starts to flood land. So we're starting to see animals that lived in swampy areas buried first, mixed with marine fossils. Look at how much more coverage we see in Africa suddenly. You're not coming in from below. It's a little eroded here and there, so you don't have continuous coverage. But you can see now there's a lot more of Africa covered, a lot more of South America, even a lot more of Europe is almost completely covered at this point, except for Scandinavia. Scandinavia was the high ground like Canada and like Brazil and sub-Saharan Africa. But even that starts to flood. The Karua sandstone comes in with all these weird Permian reptiles. They got buried, they couldn't get away. And this is what the world looked like on our globe. You can go to the Discovery Center, we have a 48-inch globe that shows the progression of the flood in about a two-minute video based on the research we're doing. And there's North America and Africa and South America still together about day 90. That's all that's left, just the highest ground. Humans are probably still alive. Day 90, they're still alive, most of the humans. Dinosaurs and things are starting to get buried. Coastal areas, lowest areas are starting to be buried. Plates are moving apart fairly rapidly. You might have even known it if you were a human. You go to the Zuni sequence, and the Zuni sequence seems to be the high point of the flood because you get the maximum coverage and the maximum thickness all happens globally at this point. I'll show you the graphs later. So here we are in stage five, and I believe the second the world got it right here, they have a big increase going on to the Zuni. And that little graph over there peaks up there. But they shouldn't have it early down below. And I gave a talk at a conference to them. Right, we've been lying to our students about these high sea levels in the Sauk and Tippecanoe in Kaskaskia. And I showed them the rock data, and they're like, huh, never knew that. Because nobody does the kind of research I'm doing. Nobody goes continent scale, continent scale, from one continent to the next and puts it all together. This is only funded by people that support ICR like yourselves. You know, the $10 a month some, some of you maybe give adds up and allows us to pay our salaries so we can do this type of research. Now here you can see how much more coverage there is in the Zuni. I hear what you're all saying back there going, but Tim, how come it doesn't cover everything? That's what you should be saying. That's what I'd say. That's what the secular guys say. That's why they don't think it ever flooded the whole earth, because we don't see complete coverage. Okay, what does the Bible say? How high did the water go over the highest hills? Let's look at North America. We talked about the bathtub ring in Lake Mead. You guys can see the white where the water used to be. There's a bathtub ring right here. See those little dots up in Canada? Oil wells up there found some Zuni rocks that shouldn't be there. But there they are. They didn't have a drone drop those rocks off. They had to come in from the side somewhere. Just the stuff in Michigan and Illinois is the same thing. 
there was continuous coverage of water across that entire area. And that's what left the bathtub ring. But you're still doubting me, aren't you? It did not. It stripped right down to the crust. God says he's going to wipe out human civilization. He, he wiped it right down to the crust. Canada is just crust today. Brazil is just crust in many places. West Africa is just crust. India, just crust. All these areas that were high ground in the pre-flood world, the highest hills were stripped right down to the crust by the tsunami wave zipping across 30, 40, 50, 60 miles an hour. So you couldn't survive. You tried to build a little boat. you get overturned and drowned. It was a catastrophic flood. It wasn't tranquil. These are tsunami waves coming in. 500 miles an hour across the open ocean. When they hit land, they slow down. They're still going 30, 40, 50 miles an hour. You see what they can do. They can kill hundreds of thousands of people. Well, they killed, the flood probably killed a billion people. Eight people survived because eight people walked through that door. Everybody else had no hope. They were past that point. We have hope today. We can have eternal salvation. We can live with Jesus, the creator of the universe, the judge of the universe. He's a righteous judge. But he also offers us salvation if we don't wait. Here's day 150. This is what the world looked like. The Bible tells us the water went only 15 cubits, about 23 feet over the highest hills. 23 feet is not much higher than your ceiling here. You don't leave a lot of sediment behind when the water's only 23 feet high, but it's zipping across 50, 60 miles an hour. You can't leave a lot of sediment behind. That's why you don't see complete coverage, but you see remnants. 4,400 years or so since the flood, you have a lot of, you had ice age come in and you rode away a lot of the rocks in Canada and other places, these highest hill areas. If you only leave a few feet of sediment, you're not going to have thousands of feet of sediment behind to show the flood went over the top. So if you go back and look, we see a lot of coverage. We see a lot of coverage. Ignore the India stuff. We don't have that done yet. But we don't see complete coverage, but we see remnants because the water only went 15 cubits over the highest hills. The Bible's clear. You can't leave thousands of feet of sediment in 15 feet of water. So that's why there's not complete coverage. The Zuni and the Apsarica show mixed land and marine, land and marine mixed together, sharks mixed in with dinosaurs, marine clams with dinosaurs, coelacanths with dinosaurs, we talked about in the last talk. All those things. So how did the dinosaurs survive the early flood? The same way humans did. They're at a higher elevation than the earliest flood levels. But when the waters came in, they left footprints in the mud, even the mighty T-Rex drowned. It was buried catastrophically. We see most of our dinosaur footprints from Texas up to Canada. Most of our dinosaurs, there's a few on the East Coast, but most of them are found in the same areas because they lived in what I call Dinosaur Peninsula. And to plot up the rock data, the three earliest sequences are very thick in those blue areas. And it's very thin down the middle to non-existent, maybe just a few feet. So the Dinosaur Peninsula, this is based on the rock data. We just said, let's pick the 500-meter line. Boom, there it was. You know, it's kind of generalized. There's some slop to it. But there's a piece of land that came down in North America. And we see this in all the continents, Africa. We see it in South America. And up in Canada, it would have been the highest ground. And all the rocks actually thin toward that. Because a hill, all the rocks are going to thin toward a hill. So it actually is backed up by the rocks themselves. So I believe the blue areas where the shallow seas, that's where in my home state of Michigan, we pick up marine fossils, corals and trilobites. That's all that was being flooded at the time. 
Shallow seas might have been 100, 200 foot thick, covered vast areas of North America. It would have been really pretty. Take your boat out there. Avoid the mosasaurs. Right? The mosasaurs were still there. Maybe it wasn't safe. I don't know. So you find fossils and marine fossils. In, you know, across, across the American West, we find dinosaurs. And up in Canada, if they weren't stripped off, we would have found probably mostly common large mammals. There's mammals with the dinosaurs, but there's squirrels and beavers, wetland-type animals you don't find here. No squirrels, huh? Okay, there's squirrels. They, they invaded? Okay. Because you guys water. But there is no animals up in Canada to speak of because they all got stripped off and buried on top of the dinosaurs in the Badlands. We see mammals on top of dinosaur rocks. Well, we do have these rocks where the water was going down. So really what you have is ecological zonation going on. Now, this is kind of crude. But early on, the brown, you have the first three sequences, just shallow seas, the first 40 days of the flood, and then dinosaur area like that across the world, dinosaur peninsula, the swampy land, you get the first coal seams, the first land plants, first land animals, all show up at once, then the dinosaurs. And as the water went higher to the uplands, it would have got most of the mammals. And the humans were probably living up with the bigger mammals, like the cattle and the lions and tigers and bears. Because you don't find any of those with dinosaurs. They're all on top of the dinosaurs. And there are a few human fossils, just very few. So then God remembered Noah, the Bible says, and the animals on the ark, and he brought a wind to blow the water off. God made a wind to pass over the earth. The waters assuaged, I mean, they went kind of back and forth. The fountains of the deep, the windows of heaven were stopped, and the rain from heaven restrained, and the waters returned from off the earth continually. After the end of 150 days, the waters were abated. So the water started to go down, but it took another whole half, over half a year before they got off the ark. Because the water takes a, floods take a long time to go down. They don't just go down overnight. So what happened is the seafloor that was being created, the older seafloor had to cool enough to sink. And we see that today. We see these ridges where it's still blowing up magma in the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, these big mountain chains under the ocean, which they just discovered these in the 1960s. And that's what really unlocked the whole idea of plate tectonics, was discoveries in the oceans. But you see, the, the Pacific is, even though there's a lot of volcanoes, it's really deep, 20,000 feet deep. It's cooled, and it pulls the water off as it kind of drains off, the ocean's sinking. If your bathtub goes down, it's going to pull the water down with it. And that's exactly what the plates did. The new hot plates were pushing up. Once they started to cool, they sank. Even the secular scientists believe this. They just don't think it took place quickly. They think it took millions of years. And of course, the hot water helped bring on the Ice Age, which was necessary to get the animals back. We talked about this morning. So here's Tejas Mega Sequence, Chapter 6. It's almost the same as number 5, because day 150 to 151 is almost the same. But you notice how thick everything gets in green offshore. This is a lot of stuff washed offshore here into the Gulf of Mexico. If you look at the Gulf of Mexico there, that big green blob, tens of thousands of feet of mud and sand washed offshore off the continent. And what they found 200 miles offshore, and they just made it over the discovery. I got to write an article about this. They made it even bigger, extended it a little farther to the southwest, is a whopper sand. About 20 years ago, they drilled into the sand out almost 200 miles offshore in seven and 10,000 feet of water, and they hit a sand that shouldn't be there. It's 1,000 foot thick or almost 2,000 in places. Pure sand, flat top, flat bottom, no gradation into it at all, just suddenly boom, like you took a dump truck and dumped sand out there. 
And what I think this is, is the runoff, the initial runoff phase of the flood. It's right on top of the Cretaceous. So as water changes direction, it's like sheet flow off your parking lot. When it rains really hard, it washes off. Massive amount of energy pushed the sand way out there in the Gulf, 200 miles offshore or more. Just a massive amount of sand. Now it's draped over some folds out there. They're able to tap into these and get about 20 billion barrels of oil in the last 15 or 20 years. 20 billion barrels in the deep Gulf because of this whopper sand that God provided in the receding phase of the flood. Now the oil, but the reservoir to get it in. But nobody believed it was there. Nobody, they expected to get a few feet of sand and a lot of clay. A few feet of sand and a lot of clay. It's, their only model for getting sand out there in a uniformitarian world is turbidites. These big offshore flows that go by gravity and they bring a little bit of sand out there a few inches at a time. It's mostly should be all clay. They told us not to look out there when I worked for Chevron because there's no sand out there anyway. You're wasting your time. Boy, were they wrong. Biggest sand in the Gulf is beyond where any human can explain it. They still can't explain it. They still struggle to explain it. Look up our, on our website, look up Whopper Sand, you can read about it. Or it's in my book as well. The Tejas, we see mostly you know, marine mammal or mammals mixed with marine critters again. Everything's always mixed with marine. It's a fact. Marine fossils are mixed everywhere with land animals, but yet they'll say that these are you know, freshwater sharks, and they'll say they're freshwater coelacanths. Freshwater herring and freshwater rays. And sure, there are some, but not all of them. And when you find dinosaurs in chalk, it's hard to explain how they get out in chalk. You find them 70 miles offshore, we talked about in Norway. How do you find a dinosaur 70 miles offshore or one and a half miles down in the rocks? Unless there are big waves washing in and washing out, washing in and washing out. This is the real data. When you add up each sequence, starting on the left and working your way across, that's the six sequences. We showed you the maps. This is the volume. We see they're mostly consistent. They all start out very minimal amounts. It gets more and more and more, and they reach a peak in the brown, which is the Zuni, or shortly thereafter in the receding phase in yellow, the Tejas. And Europe floods a little bit earlier because I believe Europe was more of a lowland area, didn't have a lot of highland. So I fled a little bit early, but you add them all up. We see the total volume over here in the end. Minimal amount of flooding early, then more, then more, reaches a peak and goes down. That's four continents worth of data. They all pretty much show the same thing. If you see global phenomena, you gotta have a global explanation. How do you explain four continents? And now I'm working in Asia, I'm almost done with Asia. God willing, I'll get that done in the next month, and then my student can process the data and interpolate everything in between through the computer program, and we'll see how Asia falls out in the next few months in Acts and Facts. I'll give you a little report on that. But see the curve back here. If you turn this plot sideways, this plot on the end, that shows the flooding that was really going on. This is what the flooding really was. So instead of a bunch of flooding early, there was a little bit of flooding, then backed off a little bit of flooding, a little more, a little more, a little more, a little more, and it reaches a peak in the Zuni. Day 40, Day one and day 150 is about here. The Bible tells us what happened. The rocks prove what happened. But the Bible was truth all along. Why do we doubt? Why do we have secular stories that don't make any sense? 
secular models don't even, aren't even accurate. This is what the rocks really show, a progressive flood. It's exactly what God describes in Genesis 7. And we see it on every continent. What better evidence for the global flood do you want? What else can I give you besides what the rocks really show? And God's word is true. How do you not see it? When I ask my secular friends this, you know, they look at my book and they make all this, oh, Clary's cherry picking the data, blah, blah, blah. They walk around and everything, but they never get to the point. How do you explain these similar global phenomena on every continent? And they don't. They just go, well, most of us believe this. It's, it's uncanny. But they don't ever address the real issues, what the rocks really show. Day one, day 40, day 150, to me it's quite clear. And you can see the Discovery Center globe, there's a 40-inch globe that kind of shows this a two-minute thing, and here's kind of the way it runs through. I forgot I had this in here, I'm sorry. It takes two minutes, I'm sorry. That was day one, the fountains bursting, making the initial plates, and North America is right up there in the middle with that dinosaur peninsula sticking down. And then Africa, and around day 20, you're starting to muddy the water because you're burying marine fossils mostly at this point. You're not even flooding the land, really, because you're only leaving fossils of marine critters. And the plates are moving around a little bit more, muddying up the land. The Appalachians form. They kind of form early in the flood. Most mountain ranges formed at the end, but a few formed as plates were colliding. And then you were getting close to the Absarica now when things started to really get bad, and you really started to move the plates real rapidly. And you can see Africa, they kind of drew them out for you. Day 40, you're now flooding the land. The water backs off a little bit, and you can see it stripped away the vegetation. So we tried to make this a little computer animated, but you can see they now separate apart. North America's now moving away. You're at day 90, which I showed you earlier with the plate boundaries kind of shown. And then you're at day 120. Humans are probably still mostly alive at this point. And then they were gone. Water went over the top of every highest hill. And then the mountains start popping back up around day 225. That's the Rockies and Andes and the Himalayas. and the None of these mountains existed until as the floodwaters were receding, except for a couple of them, the Appalachians. And the water progressively drained off as the ocean floor sank and cooled. And you get you can see the shapes of the continents showing up. And the sea level was still really high at this point. It's even harder to get from Turkey to the outer continents because sea level was so high, because there's no ice. So it would have been about 100 feet higher than I even talked about earlier today. So, but God had a plan, remember, to bring on the ice age within a couple hundred years. And it greened up there at the end. You kind of see it kind of greens up. So even though the earth was dry at day 314, the Bible says, Noah looked out, the earth was dry. They didn't get off till day 371 or so because you had to wait for vegetation to grow. Why get off the ark when the food's on the ark? And so God had them wait a little longer. And they got off and there was food, at least grasses they could eat, enough for the animals to go off and eat. So that's the global flood. That's the story. That's what the rocks really show. But let's quickly talk about it was catastrophic, and that's it. We, again, we looked at this earlier. The bone beds we see, they're like this thick, covering thousands of bones. We see rapid burial of dinosaurs and fish on top of each other, land plants and fish in the Green River Formation. We talked about the fighting dinosaurs, the so-called mummified dinosaurs that show all the skin imprints still on them. They're not truly mummies, but they're, the skin is still somewhat shown to be intact on them, like a dead horse. But dinosaurs, like all fossils, were buried rapidly. There's nothing slow about it, really. 
You might have had lags in between. And you have polystrate trees where things had to be buried so quickly they didn't erode away. And you have millions of years of erosion sometimes in the Grand Canyon. There's places where there's supposed to be 160 million years of erosion between the Muav limestone and the Redwall limestone above it, and it's almost perfectly flat. Where are the canyons? All the canyons start at the top. There should be canyons at every level filled with sediments, and yet we don't see that at all. We only see the Grand Canyon at the end. We only see the big canyons at the end where the water was receding. There's that's the hermit shale. The hermit shale is made out of clay. It should have had all sorts of divots and gullies, but it's perfectly flat with the Coconino sandstone deposited on top. How do you do that? Occasionally there's a little wobble, but it's, you look across Grand Canyon, those rock layers just go out in all directions for miles, and they're almost perfectly flat everywhere you look. If there's supposed to be millions of years of erosion in the secular story between them, but you don't see it. It's like bricks. Can't tell how long it took for a brick to go on top of each other. The rocks really don't tell you their age. But it's pretty clear if you see continuous bricks, it didn't take that long to build the brick wall. You know, walls fall down if you leave them for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. But if they're continuous, you're going to see continuous rock layers. And that's what we see in the rock record. And finally, remind you what we just saw. The flood was recent because of what we find in the rocks, what we find in the bones, back to the dinosaur bones. Those soft tissues we talked about. Original proteins found in the rocks and the fossils everywhere. Here's some more pictures of them. You notice in the bottom right picture, we see what look like red blood cells, and they have nucleus, nuclei in those cells. You think, well, those can't be red blood cells. They don't look like mine. Well, those are reptile ones. They don't lose their nucleus. Ours fall out, and you get the dividend ours. But reptiles don't. And so you see the nucleus, just what you'd expect to find in a dinosaur. Again, physical chemists have shown these things can't last even one million years. But would millions of barrels convince you? And basically, we have billions of barrels of oil. It's also organic compounds that shouldn't be there if they're really old. You can see the organic compounds. And this is kind of the, the big jump at the end is North America. See, the, what are the, we're the blue at the bottom. We're going along, running out of oil. We're all going to die, running out of oil. Oh, we're all going to die. Don't they say that? That's just a weather report. Everything's, oh, you got to watch. Dallas, it's, there could be hail. Every day they tell us, I don't they, Corey? Every day, oh, there's a chance of hail. Like, and tornadoes. Like, but if I lose power, I can't watch you anyway. Can I? Anyway, North America knows it jumps because that's the fracking. Fracking kicked in. We doubled, actually more than doubled our reserves. We became energy independent a few years ago because of fracking. That oil shouldn't be there. If it was produced millions of years ago, it should have all decayed away or already been produced, but yet it's still there. Oil can't survive millions of years either. Oil biodegrades. Do an experiment. Take a gallon of gasoline, stick it in your garage, leave it there for 20 years. I didn't say it was going to be quick. And come back and try to put it in your lawnmower and see if it runs. I'll bet you it won't run very well. You know, gasoline was a petroleum product, can't last. And we've even massaged it with a few extra chemicals. Oil can't survive millions of years. You can't survive, I'm amazed it'll survive thousands of years. Most of the oil we produce is biodegraded to some degree. And 
you get those oil sands, as they're called. Who's here for, who's here for oil sands? Are you here? Tar sands, we call them. But I was reprimanded today. Oil sands. One of the guys I was having lunch with. But it's really the same thing. It's tar. Tar is the last thing left. You know, all the liquid parts get eaten up first, and you get tar. Eventually, the tar goes away, too. But oil can't be old. So the flood, the rocks show the flood was global. You know, when you get multiple continents doing almost the same thing at the same time, reflecting the same types of fossils because the higher water levels as it went higher and higher and higher, you know, more and more coverage, more and more coverage, you add it all up, it matches exactly what the Bible says. It doesn't just match the rocks, it matches the Bible. The Bible is true. But God provides us with a way of salvation. Just like he provided that door of the ark. Thousands of more people could have got on. But they didn't. And then by day 40, they were starting to regret. By day 90, I'm sure there was great remorse and great, great regret that they didn't get on the ark. And by day 150, they were dead. Sadly, God judged the earth for its wickedness, and he'll judge it again. We have a way out through Christ. Is there a couple of these left? They're gone too? Oh, man. All right, you have to go online and get these. Uh, this came out just new. It's, again, I apologize. It's only 496 pages. I thought it would make 500, but I didn't make it. So In the next edition will be more, because I'll get more continents in it. That shows three continents in it. And actually, one World Magazine honorable mention is a top readable science book. I like the word readable in there. It's like, wow, really? <laughs> readable science. It actually is. It depends on what part you're reading. Parts are more, some parts are better than others. I tell Pastor Yates to read the first chapter and the last chapter first, and then go in and fill the details in as you want to go. But it, it actually won. I was pretty surprised that it won honorable mention, but I thought it was pretty good. Gary Parker used to work for ICR. He's an educational doctorate. said this. He also shows science and scripture belong together. Both point to one true creator God. And that's the whole goal. We want more souls for Christ. That the book ends with, it all points to Christ. He was the creator. He was the judge. But he gives us a way out. He gives us a way to have eternal happiness and joy beyond we can imagine. In heaven with him forever and ever and ever. If we just are willing to take that step, walk through that door that he opened up by his shed blood. And then there's a video of this, shorter version of this, which shows three continents. We showed four tonight because we're moving along. You can buy that online as well. And then there's any of these left? They're gone. One? There's one left. No fighting, though, like, you know, good Black Friday. You know, any of that. You can order them online, too. But this is the, where those, those video clips came from, part of this video series with the dinosaurs swimming, and they all came from this. So it's, it's kind of really well done. And then these are gone, too, right? All right. Uh, I'm hoping that we'll have book two by the end of the year, by October, in the second in the series, where he gets off the ark now. So he gets on the ark on this one. I just ruined it, didn't I? <laughs> anyway, he gets off the ark, and then he gets to explore the new world a little bit, you know, what it's like getting off the ark and and what would happen there. So it's kind of a fun story that you can read. It's a story you can read, not just facts. That's something my wife, as a kindergarten teacher, wanted. It was a little story that's not too long to hold the attention of a three- or four-year-old. And we tried it on our grandkids, and it worked. So let's, let's do another one. So we're going to have three in the series, hopefully. And then we have these left, though. 
So this covers a little bit of everything. It talks about the mega sequences I talked about tonight. I have a chapter on the flooding going on. And then we updated some of the other chapters as well. Everything's been updated and revamped. And again, we were kind of sitting at home during COVID lockdown going, hmm, hey, let's work on our book and update it. So it's been about eight years that we did. It's a lot better if you have the old one, this and the other one. And again, if you haven't done this, I don't know why you haven't. You should be ashamed of yourselves. <laughs> it's free. Every month. Every month. But if you don't want to get, you can get electronically too. Saves us money. Mailing it out, but it's free. So please sign up. But thank you very much for sticking it out. You guys are the best audience I've ever had. Never done a double feature before. <laughs> this is awesome. We actually did it. I don't, some of you couldn't wait, but I understand. So thank you so much, Perry. Okay, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm sorry you went a little long. No, no apologies. We're okay. so glad you did. Thank you. I, um, it's too much fun talking about my research. Well, it really is. I mean, it's, it's, God's word is true. If you don't get anything else, God's word is true. Amen. Every word. Amen. Every letter. Amen. God's word is true. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I do read Acts and Facts cover to cover every month. Very thankful for that. So I'll just reemphasize that. If you haven't signed up for it, do that. Um, just a great resource. Also, if you're ever in Dallas, go by the ICR Museum. Uh, you now have uh, friends that you know there. And um, the, the last time we were there, we got kind of an inside tour. And uh, Dr. Clary just showed us his big chart with all his data points and explained the core samples and the sediment layers and just took time with us. Um, in fact... Uh, Dr. Clary, who's the, who's the geneticist? Jeff Tompkins. Okay. Uh, Jeff Tompkins actually brought Zoe into his office and helped her with a school project. And uh, so anyway, if you get a chance, go by the ICR Museum in Dallas. It's great. And um, thank you guys for being here this evening. I'm just so thankful that you joined us. And again, Dr. Clary, thank you for being with us. And Corey, thanks for extending uh, your time. Appreciate that, my friend. I'll close this in prayer. Lord, your creation, the universe around us, screams out your glory, even as Psalm 19 says. And uh, the, all the creative genius and all the things that we could look at, uh, the variety, um, just tells us that you are uh, incredible in the scope of your mind and your creativity and all the diversity. And the rocks around us, especially here in Arizona, just give testimony to the fact that you hate sin that you piled up layers and layers and layers of sediment in judgment against a world that had rebelled against you, a wonderful, glorious, gracious, generous creator. And Lord, we know that next time it will not be by water, but by fire. Now we thank you that you have provided a way of salvation through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we know that uh, the world around us resonates with these truths and yet suppresses it in unrighteousness. And you have given us the gospel and the truth of your word to proclaim to a lost and dying world uh, their need of salvation and the reality of forgiveness of sin. We pray that we would be ambassadors for your grace, uh, ambassadors for your good news, even in this world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.